perhaps <clears throat> one of the most misunderstood aspects of the teachings of the Buddha and there's good reason for the misunderstanding is that they are teachings that are somewhat sort of depressing you know he he often gave a lot of emphasis to the importance of of women and men his nuns monks students to come to an ever deeper experienced understanding of how precious human life is and so he would uh, encourage the nuns and monks to perhaps go to the charnel grounds to the places where the dead bodies were were taken and to just contemplate on what they saw not to scare the living daylights out of them but to try and inculcate within them a sense of how blessed and privileged it is uh, to be born human he said that it is rarer to be born human than if there was a single turtle in one of the seven great oceans swimming and somewhere on those seven great oceans there was a wooden ring floating on the surface he said it was more likely that that turtle coming up every hundred thousand years that his head would go through the ring uh, through that wooden ring than uh, the, the likelihood of us being born human and so he really tried in every way he could out of love and compassion and out of kindness to really bring a sense of how precious each moment is life this the, this life is and so perhaps you have some sense of it in the meditation just you know how difficult it is to be momentarily present just with the miracle of being in a human body and yet how important it is and how a privilege it is I mean we can all sit up we're all perpendicular you know what a blessing that is in a world where there's so many people who are sick and so when people hear of these aspects of his teachings there can be the sense that you know this was a rather depressing guy you know this was a rather morbid teaching and so these these words of the Buddha uh, I think are quite provocative and and are, you know, are ones that are often not heard these are sayings out of the Dhammapada which is one of the sort of core collections of his teaching he says live in joy he says live in love even among those who hate he says live in joy in health even among the afflicted and he says live in joy in peace even among the troubled and he says let go of winning and losing and find joy and then he ends by saying there's no joy like the joy of freedom and essentially for those uh, um, you know who who begin to understand this path this path must be also a path of incredible joy a, a kind of joy that perhaps is new certainly in my experience it is and what I'd like to do today is talk a little about joy and about happiness and as you can no doubt sense in, 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 in these words joy is really the key word you know happiness and these are all concepts they're all words but it's important to differentiate between them because they are different felt human experiences 
happiness is conditioned. In other words, something good happens, we get a raise at work or, you know, a success uh, uh, somewhere and we're happy, you know, there's this great happiness, there's nothing wrong with that. And then of course it changes and then uh, we lose our job and then we're unhappy again, you know, and it's almost like, like every moment of happiness carries within it the seeds and the potential for unhappiness. And so if it's outside of ourselves that we look for our happiness, for some kind of uh, eternal fulfillment, we're going to be met with nothing but disappointment. And after his enlightenment, uh, in the first teaching of the Buddha, he spoke about the Four Noble Truths. And the first of these Noble Truths was that there's suffering in this world. Not that he's trying to create a morbidity, but saying, you know, it's hard to be a human being. You know, it's hard to live in a body and it's hard to live with a mind, you know, and there's suffering. And he said, there's a reason for the suffering. And he said, the reason for suffering is that everything in this world is changing. Everything in this world is changing. Bodies are changing, our mental states, I mean, even when we meditate, we have a real sense, you know, the sounds come and go, the tastes, you know, the, there's a pleasant sound, an unpleasant sound, you know, and a sensation in the body arises, disappears, a breath comes and goes. And so the, the cause of suffering is one of these noble truths. He said was nothing more than this impulse to hold on to the pleasant. We want more of the pleasant sensations and we push away the unpleasant ones. And this impulse to reach out for the pleasant and push away the unpleasant creates this suffering, this dissatisfaction in life. And so he felt it was really important that we come to a deep understanding of this ebb and flow of all phenomena outside of ourselves. Because the happiness that they condition when the circumstances are good is transitory. And when it's gone, then of course there's, there's sadness and there's heartbreak. But what he's talking about here is something different. This, this joy is not conditional upon the circumstances around us. It's not conditional upon the favorable sounds coming and the favorable mental states. I mean, we all love to feel joy and we love to feel love and compassion and kindness and forgiveness. But how do we feel when the envy comes up or we see the jealousy, we see the capacity of our hearts to rage and to fear and to feel anxious and the incredible sadness that comes from time to time, you know? So what is the relationship of this joy with the difficult times? Well, this joy is, is, is interesting because this joy is the joy of the felt experience of being in the presence of what is true. The felt experience of being in the presence of what is true. It's kind of like a peaceful, quiet kind of contentment that, that is there. And it's really important in the unfolding of meditation practice that when we discern it, because this experience is our birthright and we all know it, to become familiar with it, to befriend it and to acknowledge it as a, as a possibility, as a potential. 
in our lives. It's kind of like a silent, quiet kind of uh, joy that I'm in the presence of what is true. Not that it's necessarily pleasant, not that it's necessarily what we would have asked for, but when there's a capacity of heart and mind just to be with what is, there is a kind of settling inside of ourselves that is really important. I remember uh, in South Africa when uh, we were in the middle of the apartheid struggle and this movie came of Martin Luther King and he was a great inspiration for us when I was at university and there was a moment when in this movie Martin Luther King in Chicago was in this huddle with um, Andrew Young and Jesse Jackson somebody else, I can't remember the other one, but anyway they were sheltering Martin Luther King and the rocks were going and there was all this rioting and a reporter stuck a microphone into the huddle and said, well are you happy? You've come to Chicago and there's nothing but chaos, you know? And he said, it's critical that I be here because he said, we're getting the truth out into the open. And while it was really uncomfortable for everybody having the racism kind of lanced and seeping out into the limelight, into the awareness, I suspect and I sense that there was also a kind of truth a, and a kind of joy that at last the truth was coming out into the open. Because you know that beautiful saying of Christ in the Gnostic Gospels where he says what we bring forth from within us will save us and what we don't bring forth from within us will destroy us. It's the happiness also, the joy of bringing forth from within us that is what is not necessarily comfortable but that there's a capacity of heart to acknowledge capacity of heart to embrace what has not been embraced so this joy is the joy that accompanies the felt capacity that perhaps you all had some moments maybe many moments of this afternoon of just being with the breath just the way it is not necessarily changing it. And then if, if there is a struggle with the breathing perhaps, then the happiness of being able to be okay with the struggle. Or if the anger comes up, maybe you know there was irritation with the music next door. I don't know, did anybody feel irritated with the music? Yeah, yeah, we had a few irritations. And then it's like, you know, was it possible to go to the irritation and just feel that pushing away? I mean, how did it feel, Matilda? Was it well, it's, it hasn't happened for a long time, so and it was a real problem in this neighborhood for a long time. Oh. It's kind of, it was just, it was interesting to watch the, the irritation come up. And, yeah. And then I just went, you know, it'll go away. And it was just came to an acceptance with it, and it did go away. Isn't that interesting? You know, how when we stop struggling so often, you know, things unfold. Yeah. But just being able to, rather than get embroiled in the tangle, just, yes, you know, there's just irritation. There's a kind of joy with that, you know. It's a rare joy because in our world, by and large, you know, well over, I'm sure, 90% of the population, if something unpleasant happens, we just want to get rid of it, you know. Well, I must admit that it was much easier to be joyful and accepting of it when it went away after Yeah. You know, it went on for the rest of the evening. 
Well, I was thinking, but, you know, one of the most famous monasteries in Asia is in Rangoon in Burma. And I've not been there, but I have friends who go there and they do intensive meditation, microscopic. So they are watching like the arising and passing away of every sensation in the breathing. Not every breath, every sensation. The mind gets so concentrated and focused that you just mind moments. And it's a capacity for all of us and it will happen, you know. But there it is, the heart of Rangoon. They've got, like on every corner, they have loudspeakers playing different radio stations. They have, you know, the Hindus, you know, are, are, have, have chants going out. The Buddhists have, you know, prayer bells, and it's all over loudspeakers, you know. And there are these people creeping along. If you thought we were walking slowly, you must see the way these guys walk. You know, it's like lifting literally like that, sensation by sensation, and then the very last sensation on the ground, and then up, moving, feeling the sensations of the moving, placing, first touch, and that's the way they practice, and they have this whole thing going on, day and night all around us, you know. So, the joy that I'm speaking to is the capacity that we all have, as you mentioned, to actually be with things the way they are. And actually it feels better, doesn't it? You know, than, than to constantly fight. Now the unhappiness that I was talking about is very much a happiness that's dependent on the outside. You know, that it's kind of, uh, it's, it's outside of us, we are reaching to it, and w when it's good, it's like we hold on for as long as we can, and when it starts changing, we hold on even more, and then, of course, there's just a lot of suffering. So when the Buddha says, live in joy, uh, you know, uh, he's just suggesting, explore the capacity just to be with things exactly as they are. And at times there can be a kind of ecstasy when we, uh, the mind follows a different route, you know, where we don't go the way of resisting what is difficult. We say, yes, things are the way they are. How could they be any different? And it's almost a kind of mysterious kind of joy because we're so used to associating joy with things that we like. There's, I don't know if any of you are familiar with this wonderful man, his name is Eckhart Tolle and um, he has a lot of talks and videos and for those of you who've listened to his talks, one of the things I love the most is that, uh, you know, he tells a joke and then he cracks up and he can't stop laughing and he laughs really funny, he goes <laughs> And, and then it's like he can't stop. And so there you are on the tape, you know, driving to Hanukkah uh, and you're listening to Eckhart Tolle like snorting and laughing. And he had this one joke the other day where he said, you know, he said, human beings are so funny. He said, we think we found the relationship of our life, this person who's going to complete us, who the one we've been waiting for, the primary relationship. This was the one I was born for. And he says, you know, there's such happiness and flowering and everything. And then he says, you can be absolutely sure that that relationship is going to create more suffering than any other one you had. <laughs> and then he laughed and he laughed and he laughed and he laughed. And I thought it, it, was, it was really, a, a, you know, a good moment because, you know, he was laughing not at but with, you know, just at the truth of it, you know. Yeah. Um, just the quiet joy of being with 
things as they are. I mean, you know, when I'm with young children, with my godchild, uh, Whitney's daughter, you know, and just watching the delight with which young people relate to things, you know, it's not so much about premise, like, it's like everything is wondrous, everything is beautiful. I mean, when Christ said, you know, we have to become like children to enter the kingdom of God, I think he was saying, you know, just, just being with things as they are, moment to moment. You know, the attention span is limited to the moment, but it's there, you know. Hafiz, you know, uh, the great, wonderful Sufi poet, I think one of the most beautiful things he said, he says, I am happy even before I have a reason. He says, I'm full of light even before the sky can greet the sun or the moon. He says, dear companions, we've been in love with God for so very, very long. What can I do now? What can we do now but forever dance? You know, when we're happy without a reason, because we're just with what is, then what can we do but forever dance? So he says, live, live in joy. And sometimes this, this joy has been translated from the classical languages into a kind of zestful joy or even a rapture. The, the kind of rapture in the mind when it's in, in the presence of what is true. It's uh, the qualities of, of it are of, of like interest, interest in what's going on. It's like, what is the moment when the in-breath ends and that space between? What is it like? I mean, how many people in the course of an entire human life have actually experienced fully that landscape just once between the ending of one breath and the beginning of the next, you know? And just the interest and the passion uh, that comes with that kind of examination can be the kind of joy uh, that, uh, that is without condition. And it's really, you know, the, you know, if we were to look at the facets of it, I would say that, that it's, it's, you know, it's definitely detached, you know, we're not trying to change it. It's, there's no clasping, there's no grasping at what's going on, and there's no agenda, and there's no identification with it. It's just allowing this moment to flower just as it is. It's like the sound next door, just to arise and pass away as it is. Not that it's a bad sound, I want it to go away, it happened last week, when is it going to stop? Just a sound, coming, going, you know. And so it's really important, it feels to me, that, that when this joy happens, when there are moments, maybe we could consider them moments of grace, when there's a felt experience of how delightful it is just to be with things as they are, to really know that moment, to really befriend it with awareness, to, to familiarize ourselves with all the textures of how it feels to experience what is true. We don't have, it doesn't have to be a beautiful sunset. It doesn't have to be Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. You know, it can just be touching the floor and just, just being there, just in this moment, being utterly alive with the sensations on the tips of our fingers as they come and as they go. And in the classical texts, there are ways in which um, the nuns and monks were invited to cultivate this kind of joy. And one of the ways that I did it when I was in the monastery was to reflect on the qualities of 
the enlightened mind, of the awakened mind, the Christ mind, or whatever we want to call it. And the qualities are the qualities of generosity and, uh, you know, of, of just how it feels to be generous. Not that 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 person can be generous, the Buddha or Christ can be generous, but how does it feel in our life? How do those moments of generosity feel? Where we're not holding, but there's just, just, just a giving. You know, we had this wonderful day down in Manalani yesterday where a whole lot of women, some of whom are here today, gathered. And it was a very generous gathering of, of, of women being immensely kind and loving and supportive of one another. And how does it feel in those moments? Just, just to give, without a reason, without an agenda. You know, one of the qualities of the enlightened mind. And another one is sort of translated as morality. How, how does it feel when, when there's a sense of non-harming? When life is lived, you know, in a way that's really respectful of others, of the planet, of the space, of the time that we have. And the others, just you know, just to know are of renunciation, how it feels when when we let go, when we're not holding on to things, or of energy, wisdom, patience, perseverance, truthfulness, resolve, equanimity. Not to think that these are qualities outside of ourselves, but to acknowledge them when they arrive. Within, arise within ourselves can be a really beautiful practice and with there, there can be a feeling of joy. Maybe even uh, for me certainly sometimes uh, just reflecting on the blessing of the journey of the teachers I've had and the opportunities I've had and how it was when I started and how it is today. How things that were not workable before are becoming more workable. There can just be this quiet joy. It's not dependent on anything. It's just there. And I think that one of the facets, one of the most important um, aspects of this joy is that it's flowing. Because this joy can only arrive in circumstances where we are allowing things to be just the way they are, which is in a state of change. I don't know how it is for you, but when I feel stuck, when I feel stagnant, there's really no joy. It's almost like I'm holding the river. But, you know, in the Taoist scriptures, you know, there are so many of these beautiful images of rivers flowing to the ocean and, and streams flowing and moving. And when there's that Taoist sense of just being with the flowing and the unfolding and the continuum and the evolution of things. There can be a kind of joy that, that, that is intrinsic to that experience. And um, I think that when, when, we, when we bring ourselves to an experience of life, where we are really true to the deepest part of ourselves, when we're living a truly authentic life, a life that, that has integrity, uh, born of our deepening understanding of who we are and then having the courage to live the, the deeper impulses of our hearts. There has to be this experience of joy in the world where we can be happy without a reason. We're not looking outside of ourselves for fulfillment.
We just are, are quite comfortable and willing to be wholehearted in this moment the way it is. There's this wonderful saying by the third Zen patriarch where he says, the way is not difficult for those who have no preferences, you know. You know, we can live without preference, just life becomes so much easier. And it's not, you know, for anyone to tell us that, you know, the way of meditation is, you know, is to consider it, to see how it's true, you know. There's this beautiful saying in a lot of the mystical traditions where they say, you too come and see for yourself, you know. Not saying this is how it is, but saying, you know, come and see for yourself. If this is true for you, then it's your truth. It's not anybody else's truth. And he says, live in joy, live in love. Live in joy, live in love. And it seems like love almost follows the joy like a shadow. I was out walking with a friend last night. I don't know if any of you were outside after all the clouds cleared and all the everything gathered. The, 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 the moon was so bright and we were out at the petroglyphs and there was enough moonlight, you know, to see the petroglyphs. And uh, I was thinking of that Cat Stevens song. I don't know if any of you know it, The Moon Shadow. I'm being followed by a moon shadow. And I said to my friend Don, I said, gosh, you know, it's like we've been followed by, by moon shadows. And I think that 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 love is absolutely the shadow of this kind of joy, of our ever more deeply experienced capacity to be with things as they are. That there's this kind of joy, and out of that joy must come the love. It's almost like the love is, is the fragrance of that joy. And my sense is the reason for that is that this joy, this happiness of being in the present, cannot be contained. It almost, there's an agony if we try to hold on to it as my joy, you know, Gavin's joy or Julie's joy or Michael's joy or my Kimball's joy. That if you try and hold on it, there's an agony. It almost has to be given. And in the giving, it is so infectious. It's almost like in the willingness to extend that joy, we ignite the same in the other. For those perhaps who have forgotten, they can remember it. And so the joy is passed on. But it's not by contrivance or by practice. It's just in the Tao of things. That our willingness and capacity to bring ourselves to the present moment is not only a gesture of self-blessing, and great love. It's really a gesture of love for all that, all those that we come in contact with. This sharing of the joy, of the joy of being present, is, I think, one of the the highest expressions of love in in our world. It's almost infectious. It's almost contagious this living in the present moment. It's an invitation to others who've forgotten that this is possible. And of course we all forget and then we remember. Because being present, being alive, being total in the moment is not some esoteric, otherworldly, really difficult thing that we have to find and bring into our lives. It is the innate expression of our essence. It's a capacity we all have. It's just that we've forgotten. We live in a world that is so distracted, that's so busy, that is so involved with the outside only. 
And so coming home to the moment is not coming home to something that is outside of us. It is coming home to the deepest places in ourselves as birthright, as possibility, and as absolute immediate potential for all of us. And I think that's one of the reasons why coming together as we do here and other places is such a powerful thing because we remind each other in different ways of what's possible for all of us. None of us is special. We all have this innate possibility. And how beautiful that you know we have a community of people who are willing to be mirrors to one another when, when we forget. Hafiz uh, puts it this way. He says, ever since Joy heard your name, it's been running through the streets trying to find you. And several times in the last week, God himself has even come to my door asking me for your address. Once I said, God, I thought you knew everything. Why are you asking me where one of your lovers live? And the beloved replied, Indeed, Hafiz, I do know everything. But it is fun playing drunk once in a while. And I love uh, intimate chat and the warmth of your heart's fire. Maybe we should make this poem into a song, Hafiz is saying. I think it has potential. He says, how does this refrain sound? For I know it is a truth. Ever since Joy heard your name, it's been running through the streets trying to find you. And several times in the last week, God himself came to my door, so sweetly asking for your address, wanting the beautiful warmth of your heart's fire. Hafiz lived in the 14th century, in the 14th century, in Shiraz, in Iran. And I sense that this joy is also intimately involved with what the Sufis call the homesickness of the heart. That part in all of us, it's the part that brings us here. It's that part that's yearning for, for more meaning in life, for a deeper... We, we sense that there's more, you know. We sense that there's more potential, that there's more meaning, that there's more possibility. And there's this yearning for God. The, the Sufis, the way they uh, mystically frame it is the soul is the feminine and the soul is yearning for the beloved, for God, for the masculine and that the ultimate love affair is the union between the soul and the beloved, the coming together. And the whole way of the Sufis is about the felt moment-to-moment -moment capacity of this yearning of the divine agony of being separated from what is true. And then there are the blessed moments of grace when we're in a felt experience of what is true. And there's the joy. And it's not about a magnificent symphony. It could be just about hearing a sound and just allowing it to be and just feeling like I'm home. Things are the way they are. I don't need so much. In fact, I don't need anything. I'm really complete and everything else is just gravy. You know, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So this this homesickness of the heart, and for the Sufis, that's the big fire. You know, that's really the fire of the journey. The Sufis say there's this one saying about love is a fire and I am wood. You know, 
you know, let me burn with this yearning for God. And in this yearning and in the sense of homecoming, there's a joy that has nothing to do with the world of outside, the world outside of us. It's just the joy of feeling that we're coming home to to ourselves. And then I think, as the Buddha said, you know, live in joy even among those who hate. I'm sure what he must have meant was that when we live in this joy, then it becomes an increasing pos impossibility for us to 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 hate another. It's almost like if we look to all the mystical words of 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 the ancestors, you know, Christ who said, you know, love your enemies, you know, bless those who hate you. And the Buddha said, hatred never ceases with hatred. Hatred only ceases with love. When we live in joy, I think it becomes increasingly impossible for us to actually have enemies in our life. It's almost like like our felt experience of ourselves includes another. And it would be absolutely impossible for us to hate ourselves and therefore equally impossible to hate another and to create enemies. And what a self-blessing it is to incline increasingly in the direction where there's no longer a need to blame. There's no longer a need to accuse. There's no longer a need to persecute or make war upon another. They are felt as part of ourselves and then we can respond to them appropriately. I mean forcefully if we need to, but not with hate. Such a different vision. It's almost like we become love. And this love is not a business person's love, like I'll love you, Orange, if you'll love me, you know. This is just the love. Not not our love. The love. The love. There's this great story where this monk comes to the Buddha and says to him, he, he just got enlightened. For those of you who've read a lot of these old scriptures, you know, these people, these women and men were getting enlightened all the time, you know. And so this guy got enlightened and he was like fresh, you know, freshly enlightened. So he comes to the Buddha and says, you know, you know, I, I just want to stay around you all the time. I don't want to leave you. And the Buddha said, no, you, you have to go out now, you know, and you have to go and teach, you have to go and share this thing, you know. So he goes off and being an enthusiast, he says, okay, I want to go to the province of Sukha in Bihar. Has anybody been to Bihar in, in northern India? I haven't, but I know there are people that have been to India here. Anyway, but Sukha at that time was a really dangerous place. And the Buddha said, are you sure you want to go to Sukha? He says, I want to go to Sukha. He says, well, you know, nobody's ever gone there before because they're all thugs and robbers and rapists and, you know, bad people. He says, no, I want to go to Sukha. So the Buddha said, well, if you go to Sukha and he said, you know, if they insult you or they hum humiliate you or if they're nasty to you, what are you going to do? He said, oh, I'll just be grateful because, you know, they haven't hurt me and, you know, they haven't injured me. And so he says, well, what happens if when you go to Sukha, they beat you up, you know, and they hurt you and they injure you? And he says, that's cool. He said, you know, I'll be grateful. <laughs> he says, oh, you know, I'll be grateful because they won't have killed me, you know. And the Buddha said, okay, well, what happens if you go to Sukha and they murder you, you know, and they kill you and you're dead? And he says, well, I'll be grateful. He says, because then it'll be the end of this life and there won't be any more bad karma. And, uh, you know, I'll be happy. 
And the Buddha said, okay, you're ready, you can go to Sukha, you know. Living without enemies, you know, it's just an amazing possibility and it's not about what's possible for other people, it's the birthright of all of us. Rabia was this wonderful Sufi mystic and she lived in the... Rabia... She was, I think, like in the 11th or 12th century, just before Rumi, and uh, she had a copy of the Quran and she was with her friend Hassan, who was another famous Sufi, and she took a pen and she scratched out this line in the Quran. It's like, oh my God, you know. And her son looked and she scratched out this line where the Archangel Gabriel speaking through Muhammad, it said, hate the devil. And she scratched out and he said, you can't scratch out anything, you know, in the book. She said, this is my Quran. And she said, I'm scratching this out because my love of God makes it impossible for me to hate even the devil, you know. It's so beautiful to hate even the devil. You know, and the joy that must come from that felt experience of human life where there's that impossibility to make enemies is beyond understanding. And this is the, the joy, I think, that he is he's pointing to. That, you know, I think that when I, our sense of, of of love, our experience of love is uncircumscribed, where there are no parameters or perimeters to it, then I think it becomes impossible for there to be another, you know, an experience of other. And then he says, live in joy and in health, even among the afflicted, even among the afflicted. And what he means by health is not physical health. You know, he's talking about, you know, real living in health, being, live whole. Live undivided. Don't live a life where we're splitting off parts of ourselves. That's why the meditation practice is so beautiful, because it's inclusive of everything. You know, there's no part of our experience that is outside the vision of practice. We were talking yesterday, and I, I shared the story of a friend of mine. I, I asked her, and she's also a meditation teacher, and said, what do you think of the three things that that people really just don't want to look at. You know, they'll look at their breath and they'll look at this and they'll look at that, but what do you think of the three things that people really don't want to go near? And she said, oh, that's easy. She said, number one is money, number two is sex, and number three is in-laws, you know. <laughs> money, sex, and in-laws, the three things. And so in a way, really, the real practice is bringing those into the heart of the spiritual life, really looking exploring the capacity in the places that are unacknowledged, unembraced, to be conscious, to be loving. Because the vision of meditation practice is that everything is workable, without exception. I mean, even having 17, 18 of us here doing the walking meditation, it's workable. Who would have thought it, you know? We can do it, you know? And so, so it is, you know, just, just just debunking the myth that there are some things that are just impossible. But it's not by belief, it's by experience, again and again and again. And so living in, living in joy in health means, you know, living in a way where we're unfragmented, where we're undivided, where we not split, where there's a felt experience of oneness. The false experience of indivisibility, where who we are is lived everywhere. 
it's not like with this person I'm this label and this persona, like here I'm the teacher, there I'm the author, and there I'm the gay man, and there I'm you know, the white South African. It's like who we are is who we are wherever we are. What a relief, what a self-blessing, what joy that is to come home to ourselves in that way. He says, even among the afflicted, even among the afflicted live in joy. This is a little provocative, you know, because he's saying, with those who are suffering, live in joy. I mean, you know, there's this prevailing thing like, you know, if you're working with the poor and the homeless, you don't want to, you know, go around sort of skipping the light fantastic, you know, being happy and smiling. But he's talking about something I think that's really important. You know, he's saying, no, don't be miserable when you're working with those that are suffering. He says that, you know, there can so often be this feeling of, you know, I can't dance, you know, when, when I'm with those that are hurting, I cannot be, be, be joyful. There's this practice in Buddhism, for, some of you might be familiar with it, it's called the, the, the Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva vows in Buddhism are these vows that you take to save all sentient beings. And they are very real vows. And when I go to the other side of the island to Robert A. Kenroshi, uh, every time we meditate, we, we vow, you know, sentient beings are innumerable. I vow to save them all, you know. Now, I was, you know, at the beginning, I thought, this is like a tall order. This is like a lot, you know. It's like I might be binding off more than I can chew, you know. But I think my own sense of it, and of course for each of us it's our own individual journey, I think that that we save in the deepest sense of the word, not saving, saving is a difficult word, we inform one another when we are living our deepest truth, when we're living uh, a, a joyful life that has integrity, that's authentic, that we're not pretending, we're not pretentious, we're not putting on a face, we're just being who who, who we are, even with a sense of, of humor, if necessary. There's this great little poem of, we're having a Hafiz day today, but that's okay. He says, God and I have become like two giant fat people living in a tiny boat. He says, we keep bumping into each other and laughing. That's pretty good, hey? God and I have become like two giant big fat people living in a tiny boat. We keep bumping into each other and laughing, you know. And he says, live in joy and in peace even among um, the troubled. And you know, he's not saying don't help, you know, certainly we help, we serve, you know, we are kind. But here I think one of the most misunderstood aspects of meditation comes in. You know, people who are focused and concerned about the world, which is so important and precious, look at these meditators and think, you know, they're so self-absorbed, you know, they're so, so, so selfish, they're so myopic, you know, they're not looking beyond their noses. But I think it's different. I think, I think that when we come home to ourselves in, in ever deeper ways, there's a way that we can inform one another, the way that we can touch one another. The extent to which our hearts are not circumscribed with fear and inhibition is the degree to which we can truly love one another without 
limit or without condition. And so I think coming home to ourselves rather than being selfish is really a blessing to all sentient beings. Because I think someone who, who, who really lives in peace, in inner peace, where there's a sense of, you know, of, of a deep, deep dissolution of the chaos and the conflict, the self-hatred that so many human beings live with, then we are and must be a great source of nourishment and comfort to other people. So I believe that what we do here by coming together, being present, being available to ourselves and to one another in the silence, we are healing the world in a very real and absolute way because every moment of consciousness, present-mindedness informs the collective and we're healing the world. The world becomes more conscious in our efforts and resolve to be awake right here and right now. Not as, a, as, as an idea, I, I, I really sense it to be true. I think it's one of the most radical interventions in an enormously suffering, suffering world. I'm going to go through the rest of these a little quickly because I want to leave a body of time. He says, let go of winning and losing and find joy. And I think that what he's saying is that, you know, so many of us live lives in competition with ourselves. We have yardsticks and ideas of who we should be. And of course, we don't measure up to to these grandiose ideas. We fall short and then there's, there's conflict, there's disappointment, there's self-hatred. And he's just saying, live with things exactly as they are. Live in joy, not with winning and losing. There's that wonderful poem of Rumi where he says, out beyond all ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing, he said, there is a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to speak about. You know, beyond right, beyond wrong, beyond winning and losing. Our birthright, not as imposing it on us, it's about the flowering of what's potential, that we don't have to be in competition with others or with a sense of who we must be. All we have to be is right here, right now, true to the moment. It has to be a joyful homecoming. And then he says, and there's no joy like the joy of freedom. You know, and this joy of freedom is really a joy of, of freedom from scriptures, from concepts, from religious structures, from all the shoulds that we impose on ourselves and others impose on us, our society imposes on us. It's the joy of desire and of pushing away, of, of not pushing away and the joy of not getting attached. It's, whoops, there we go. I've been going for exactly 45 minutes and I'm just about done. You know, and it's also the joy of not eliminating hatred or fear or jealousy, but the joy of befriending these qualities, the sadness of befriending the sadness so that we're not a victim of anger, we're not a victim of sadness, we're not a victim of fear. It's like when the sadness comes, when the fear comes, when the joy comes, there's a capacity of heart that if it had words it would say, Welcome, here we go again. Like, do your worst. Let me die of fear, you know? 
let's take tea together and sit down like an old cantankerous, two old cantankerous friends and get to know each other, you know. It's such a different way, you know, than the way all of us have done and do at times maybe of, oh my God, fear, oh, it's back, you know. And then it's like, or it's like, oh my God, the fear is back. And then it's like fear of fear, you know. Or it's like, the anger is back, I'm so pissed off, you know, here I am angry again, you know, and then we're angry with the anger, you know, and then we get more anger, you know, you know, or we, or we sad because we're sad, you know, and then we're really sad, you know. <laughs> and all the extra sadnesses are the mind adding on more sadness. But if we could just stay with the fear, with the sadness, not that it's easy, you know, not that it's easy, it's hard to feel the sadness. I mean, all of us have lived lives that have involved so much suffering. And part of the journey requires that we open to the broken heart that has survived all this suffering. And it's one of the reasons why we really need one another to be reminded that the flowering of sadness is critical to the flowering of our birthright. And so it's appropriate that we feel fear when we go to the edges. It's appropriate that we be scared of sadness because we've never felt a sadness this large before. And somehow there will come a felt capacity to feel everything that arises. And in that felt capacity to feel what arises, there is an experience of joy that is completely unconditioned has nothing to do with anything outside of ourselves. And that joy is our birthright. And it's an ever-present possibility available to us moment to moment to moment in the living of this precious, precious human life. And so Rumi, uh, Hafiz says, we've not come here to take prisoners, but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and to joy. We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run like hell, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred, tender vision of your beautiful heart. We have a duty to befriend those aspects of obedience that stand outside of our house and shout to our reason, oh please, oh please, come out here and play. For we have not come here to take prisoners or to confine our wondrous spirits, but to experience ever and ever more deeply our divine courage freedom, light, and joy. Thank you. May we sit together for a moment, please.
we have just under half an hour uh, to hear from one another. There's great wisdom, splendid hearts here. And so this is really a chance just to to hear how it is right now. Before we do that, I just would like to cover a few important things. One is to really thank Matilda and also Orange who helped get the house ready and available to us and open it in such a generous way to the multitudes, <laughs> never knowing how many are going to come. Thank you, Matilda. <laughs> I think there's a special place in heaven for people who open their houses like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is uh, I'm doing, the, the, I'm not, we're doing, there is another retreat happening on the 20th of March. There are flyers here. It's called the return, titled it The Return of the Mother, The Return of the Father. And basically it's going to be about the sacred feminine and sacred masculine aspects of the spiritual journey and how in the flowering of all of us it feels really critical that there be an experienced understanding of the masculine and the feminine in spiritual practice that there's a time there's a season for the mother of embracing of coming home holding of the mysterious the inclusive and there's a time for the sacred masculine of being a little firmer being directive, uh, progressive, a little more linear. And the whole journey is about kind of having a toolbox of both the masculine and the feminine and bringing them uh, into the play of spiritual practice. So that's on the 20th. Um, there are books and there are copies of talks available now. This little guy here makes it possible for us to have CDs, and they're really high-quality CDs. So, so we'll have, from the last retreat onwards, there are CDs also available, and you can order them. They're envelopes. It's all there. And the way the money works is that I don't charge when I offer these teachings, and um, this is somewhat traditional practice of not charging. They consider priceless, and so I do accept donations. And that's how I cover my living expenses. And the way we're doing it is on a suggested donation basis, just to give some idea of, of what it is. The sort of sliding scale is 20 to 50 for something like this. And it's not required, it's just a suggested. And I really thank you from the bottom of my heart for uh, your support, whatever is possible. It makes a big difference. And, makes it possible for me to continue. So, thank you. And so now, how are we doing? Joyful. Joyful. Yeah, sorry, there's a calabash at the door there. For... Yeah, do you, want to, do you want to point to the calabash, Carol? There we go, thank you, love. Hmm. So, how's it going? Aren't you tired of my voice? <laughs> so instead of the anger of the um, music next door, I uh, noticed my breathing when I was 
conscious of how loud it was, and I was really trying to keep it quiet because I thought, okay, I'm really supposed to be quiet with what I'm reading. It's really loud. And then I thought, well, and then I was looking for the reason, and uh, all of a sudden the cat went by. And it kind of brought up the whole fear of being cats, an allergy to cats. I can't breathe. And used to go into deep you know, fear and asthma attacks. And just noticing it, you know, the dribbling of the nose, and just the, the, the throat tightens, and just staying with it, staying with it. And it was really kind of an interesting experience without the, the thought about it, without the fear about it. It was just, you know, noticing when the fear came up, but just basically noticing. So it was a it was a rather pleasant experience of having a cat in the room, which I normally did not have. Huh. Huh. <laughs> That's beautiful that you notice each of the steps in the process like that. Yeah. I mean, it's such self-blessing because, I mean, is it your sense that so often it's almost like we see the cat and then it's like there's this whole story and everything just gets yeah, worse. And it gets worse. Much more than just a tickle in the throat. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to die, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's like terminal. From a scientific point of view, when you look at the research about meditation and disease, the most profound result that we see is with asthmatic people, interestingly enough. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Meditation really helps them work through that. That's beautiful. It kept me really conscious in my breath, though. Yeah. Because I was, I was so aware of how loud it was and all that, I couldn't escape it. Like, oh, beautiful. Breathing with God. <laughs> and so just as a matter of interest, I mean, where did the notion come from that you should not breathe loudly? I'm no, just interested. I look at that oh, what did you find? Um, um, you know, acceptance, where, where it wasn't okay. And then who was that coming from? Was that me? Was it my mother? Was it I can't put it on her. It was me. It was totally my own ego about who I'm supposed to be. Oh. You know. Who are you supposed to be? I don't, well, I mean, you know, in this body and all. And a quiet breather. A quiet breather. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So there was that For me, you know, when I did hear your breathing, which wasn't often, it reminded me to come back, you know, if I was thinking and stuff. So it was actually a blessing. How was it for other people? I was thinking, my yoga teacher's breathing so hard. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Was <laughs> that loud? Yeah. No. Wait till I tell the other students. <laughs> Mm. What that 
Well, in the broadest sense, what we're doing is we're developing a capacity of mind. It's almost like we're exercising a muscle. And this particular muscle, what it does, if we, if we look at it as the muscle of the mind, which is to really make it conceptual, but we're just developing the capacity to be present with whatever's happening. So rather than focusing on something specific, there are lots of practices like TM, you know, they practice on a specific thing, or a mantra, or whatever. This is developing what is called momentary concentration, which blesses us with the capacity to be with whatever it is that's going on, whatever situation we find ourselves in. So it's not like we have to be anywhere in order to do it. I mean, it's, you know, for me, you know, when I, I started 25 years ago, I couldn't believe it. It made so much sense to me. It's like it was a no-brainer. Now, of course, everybody has their own way. It's not like it's the only way or the best way. I would never say that. But what it does is over time, there's just this, almost like the mind is less scattered than it is present. It's almost like it's so uncomfortable being out of the moment that you just come back. It's like, oh my God, you know, that was terrible, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it requires just that willingness to begin again and again and again. And then a lot of humility, to deal with humility, because, you know, you still get caught all the time, you know? The mind has no shame. So, you know, it will, it will pull out all the stops, you know? But the joy that I spoke, I'm, you know, how is this question of joy for you? I'd be interested to know. This joy of just being present, you know, I mean, the joy of just being with a tickle in the throat that is nothing more than a tickle, you know, it sounds to me like, for me, that would be one of the great happinesses when I can just have the tickle, you know? Now, of course, 90% of the world would say, Oh my God, what are these people doing, you know? We're not talking about Mercedes Benzes, you know, or, you know, million dollar homes, but just the joy of just being with a tickle when perhaps before it was a tickle and a lot of fear and escalating, you know. Why not do that and see what happens? Might be interesting. Because the one thing that's sure is that in the conditioned world, everything's changing. And so if you came home to yourself in a sustained way, it might be that there are different flavors of it, you know? And it might be that there's intimations of something more, you know? We each have our own path, you know, I mean, and that's the beauty. It's not that we're trying to do cookie cutters, you know, it's that 
one of the reasons why the Buddha was such a master is he had these tools that were very helpful. You know, and I've, you know, Catholic nuns and monks and rabbis and Sufis and Zoroastrians and Jews and, you know, everybody, I've done retreats with all these people, you know, because this practice that brings us to the present moment enriches whatever our spiritual foundation is. You know, it's not about signing up to be a Buddhist. I mean, I'm not a Buddhist, you know. I don't know what I am. But I know that I value the present moment. That I know. That's my temple. I remember, just the remembering that um, it's not conditional, you know, this joy that we're speaking about. And um, that in my life recently, there's been quite a bit of stressors and uncertainty and questions. Um, and I've gotten stuck in that, in this thinking I have to be stressed out because there's stress around me. So I have to be, um, you know, worried about it. I have to be confused about it. And then it wasn't until um, like a week ago, I was, I don't know, I was just driving and it, was, it wasn't quiet. I was in the moment. And what came to me was I just, it's like you're saying to say yes. Say yes to this, all of this, and um, it immediately started to change. Yeah, and beautiful. To lift, and my mood began to lift. And, but just the remembering—it's not—it's not conditional. I can be joyful even in the midst of, of, of a bit of chaos. Yeah, there's a real alchemy that happens, and it's not—you know. This is not offered as a belief, but as an inquiry that you, you know you may want to look at. There's an alchemy that happens the moment that we accept what's on our plate, doors open. But it's not as a belief. It has to change. You know, when we're in resistance to what is, it's almost like we are like this. But when there's acceptance, then it's almost like the divine, you know, can breathe through, or whatever, whatever we frame it, you know. The Taoist would say, the Tao is moving again, you know. But it's the mystical alchemy of yes. And whether it's sadness, whether it's disease, whether it's death, whatever it is, whether it's a mental state, whether it's a cat walking across the room, you know, when there's the felt experience of the yes, just things are the way they are, then it's almost like, you know, the landscape opens. I mean, I remember us speaking yesterday about that retreat after 9-11 at Wood Valley, it was the, the weekend after, coincidentally, and it was coincidentally titled Beyond the Grip of Fear. You know, people obviously, you know, in a real state. And it felt like the most important thing in that retreat was to explore the possibility of saying yes. Not a yes that this is okay, but a yes that this is where we, as a collective, have reached. That we can do something like this. And that most fundamentally, it's not about pointing the finger outside. It's about we as a species, we as a family of man, have gotten to the place where this is now possible. 
we've kind of crossed another threshold. And what do we do? Say no? If we say no, what are we saying no to? It's just the no of denying. It's happened, you know? So this yes is so powerful. There's an alchemy in this. That's beautiful, you know. And it's not the yes of condoning. It's not the yes of saying the abuse of children is just fine, you know. And what Catholic priests have been doing is just fine. It's the yes of saying, yes, this happens. This is happening. And then the response comes. And it's not knee-jerk. It's response from a place of broken-heartedness, if necessary. And then we're not trying to get rid of it and not deal with it. It's the yes of, of almost like a self-acknowledgement when the sense of self is larger than me and mine. may not get quiet and then a yes to that yeah. let's just do a little experiment together for a moment okay if you just let's just do this together I mean you know if you just close your eyes and just bring a sense of that spacious alert aware presence that is a part of the meditation practice and just see Carol, if there can be, if there's a possibility of a spaciousness that is larger than that whole corridor of no's and arguments and thoughts, that the meditation practice is about exploring the capacity for a spacious yes that's larger than even all those little voices that want to say no. And that you can just rest in the yes, and it's almost like looking at a whole lot of little children acting out and, and, and throwing tantrums, and just holding them like spaciously. And so it's not so much about dealing with each one of them, it's almost just about resting in the space. Okay, thank you. I want to just try that rather than feeling like you have to actually address each of the no's. It's almost like just kind of evoking that... That's why I like the spaciousness. It's not always an offered part of the instructions, but the spaciousness, just cultivated in meditation, can be really helpful when the mind is really agitated. And then you, you just 
have a spaciousness that's bigger than the agitation and then it's almost like all the agitation can go on and you don't have to deal with each little one, you know. Just play with it. It'd be interesting to see how it goes. And you don't have to do anything about it. It's a feeling. And it might be interesting just to go to a quiet place from time to time and just evoke your grandmother. And then in the same way as I suggested, familiarizing ourselves with that experience of joy. This is kind of exactly the same thing. It's all, but it's just coming to you in the framing of your grandmother, who sounds like she probably had the experience of this kind of joy, at least in some measure. And so I would use the, the memory of her to evoke the experience of that spacious acceptance and just become familiar with it. The grandmother moment. Is there anybody who hasn't spoken who would like to say anything before we close? Because we're at 6.30 and I don't want to go over, but I also don't want to just bring down the sword. Hmm. Well, should we spend just a moment together before I close? even happy and joyful even before I have a reason says Hafiz I'm full of light even before the sky can greet the Sun or the moon dear companions we have been in love with God for so very very long what can we do now but forever dance The next sitting is on the 21st of March, the day after the retreat. Never a dull moment. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.